Hello and welcome to The Stooshy, the award-winning Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip and on this episode I am joined by Justin Bowie and Rachel Amory as we return to our weekly look at life beyond the Holyrood politics bubble. We've got lots to go over. Hamza Yousaf was back making his first statement as government leader this week since the Easter break. That happened on the same day as the SNP treasurer Colin Beattie was arrested and released in connection with the ongoing finance investigation. Mr Yousaf ripped up or paused some big SNP policies, more of which later. And we've got some fresh polling, which underlines how hard it's been for the new leader to set a course of his choosing in a difficult context. There was some political action in Dundee with the Scottish Trades Union Congress, attended by the First Minister and Labour's UK Deputy Leader, amongst others. And there's plenty more besides that. I think we should start with a look at the changes ordered by the First Minister this week before we listen to something more about the potentially controversial policies still coming down the line. One in particular about much more tough, highly protected marine protection policy, which people who live across Scotland's coastal communities and islands are getting a bit exercised about. Justin, to start with, you picked out three big things which the the new SNP leader has has had to basically start again. Yes, so it was really a proper reset from Hamza Yousaf this week. Um, I, I suppose one of the biggest ones to start with would be the deposit return scheme. So for people unaware, the deposit return scheme is sort of an environmental recycling initiative where customers, when they go to you know shops, will have to pay more for single-use containers, so you know cans and bottles and glass, and they get their 20 pence back when they take them to return points. So in principle, quite, you know, a kind of well-intentioned scheme. But the problem is businesses have argued that it's going to up their costs. They are unhappy that it's not aligned with the UK. The UK scheme is going to come in at a later date. They've said that there's been a lot of uncertainty around this as well. So Hamza Yousaf has said that instead of going live in August, this is now going to be sort of kicked down the can until next March. Now, given the Greens who have been steering this through Parliament, you know, were insistent it would come out in August, it's kind of a bit of an admission of defeat, but businesses might be happy that there's a sense they're being listened to. The next one is the National Care Service. So the plan to sort of bring all care services into one centralised body, almost similar to the NHS. That, again, has been criticised by key stakeholders who kind of argue that there's no guarantee it's going to improve service. It's maybe going to become a bit too, you know national instead of local people being able to make local decisions there's going to be a sort of pause on that that's going to be consulted on again and the final one is the plans to restrict alcohol advertising this was still very much at the consultation stage the consultation had just finished but basically a lot of you know whiskey firms and drinks firms argued that this would really hurt their ability to advertise and to promote their products and in Scotland, when you know you think of whiskey brands, you know you think Johnny Walker, for example, having a kind of, you know, very much a, a kind of you know experience place where you can go and you can drink and you can sample products. You know, you know, big firms were very unsure how this was going to work. You know, the worst case scenarios where places couldn't promote themselves on you know their billboards and you know outside, you know their premises. That that seemed quite unlikely, but there was still a concern that this would be very very restrictive. So yeah, those those were the three big policies we've seen a change to. Um, or at least a kind of delay or a pause, or, you know, in the case of alcohol advertising, we're going back to the drawing board, as the First Minister said. So very much sort of a reset on, you know, things that were quite central to Nicola Sturgeon's legacy and policy agenda. 
Yeah, all of those things felt in some way that they were a long time coming, especially the bottle deposit scheme, which there's not been a week gone by without someone saying that this is going to be really bad. I mean, things like companies saying we're just simply not going to operate in Scotland anymore. There was some really apocalyptic claims about the impact it would have on business. I mean, you're also looking at... um, more of the reaction on that and about the you know counting up the costs of this policy whether you agree with the policy in principle or not the way it's been handled is it's causing some some anger i mean what what kind of sense are you getting about the the long term financial legacy of this mishandled kind of uh, leading well you know some businesses i've been speaking to have pointed out you know they were preparing so they were kind of you know getting ready to implement this so that's had costs you know some of them have been taking legal advice for example to argue you know is it fair for the government to implement this? Is there any way around it? You know, do we have to comply? So, you know, firms have already spent money. The Scottish government have obviously spent money and, and even just time getting in. I think that's a big thing. You know, businesses I've been speaking to have been, you know, just talking about the time they've put into this, you know, whether it be consulting, complaining, considering how they can how they can do it. And, you know, you think in the aftermath of COVID, cost of living crisis, the hospitality industry has already had a tough time. And when it comes to the big you know, kind of big companies, there is a point to be made that, you know, when it comes to the environment, maybe they should be sort of taking on more of the cost instead of local councils. But when it comes to smaller businesses, a lot of them are already struggling. And it's not just businesses who have been complaining. Obviously, the opposition in Holyrood uh, don't like it. You'd expect that. But the SNP's Fergus Ewing, who has become a very strong critic of the party, in many respects, has been absolutely scathing about the scheme. He warned a while back um, it could turn into a catastrophe. And he spoke about it yesterday in Parliament again, and he was very, very scathing about it. Um, he has been heavily critical of the Greens, who obviously, again, are steering this with Parliament on a lot of matters. But as a sort of Highland MSP and, you know, in an area where a lot of businesses and, you know, whiskey firms have not been keen on this, he has been heavily critical. Yeah. And I suppose those within the SNP who don't like it might see this as a bit of a win since it's been delayed. Yeah. Yeah, the delay. Um, one of the policies which is causing some disquiet. I mean, there's no such thing as an easy policy. If they're trying to make big changes, particularly if it's to do with really changing people's behaviour and something that needs to protect the environment, um, tackle climate change, things like that, there's always going to be tensions about some tricky policies. One of them, though, the Highly Protected Marine Areas, or HPMAs, and this is going to go a lot further than the current marine areas that are protected, where um, about 10% or at least 10% of the seas around Scotland will be designated this way by 2026. It's going to have serious limits imposed on any kind of fishing aquaculture um, and also kind of restrict or at least regulate other activities, including diving, uh, recreational uh, use of, of the waters. So in places like uh, the West Coast, the East Coast, and all round, but particularly the Highlands and Islands, where there's long been a, a sense that policies aren't taking proper uh, a proper look at, at fragile communities, depopulation, things like that. Uh, this is seen. This is basically being seen as just the final nail in a coffin for some. So. With that in mind, we decided to go and have a chat to the people who are at the sharp end of this. And one particular uh, woman called Rhoda Meek, who's the chair of the Tyree Development Trust and is a co-owner of a tea business on the island. She lives in a house her great-great-grandfather built. Um, she's a crofter. She knows the place well. 
It's the policy about highly protected marine areas which is getting the bulk of attention there. Adele Merson uh, from the Press and Journal spoke to Rhoda as part of a package that we're going to publish online as well with a much wider look at this. Uh, these areas are, let's be honest, pretty vague at the moment. Hamza Yousaf himself said there's very little detail there. Um, we'll go on to talk about the political ramifications later. But first, let's hear how this policy, which aims to protect the environment, is being received by people who say their island livelihoods are at risk. Adele began by asking Rhoda for her thoughts on the policy. The HPMA consultation has mainly created a huge amount of, of fear and uncertainty, certainly in our community, and that's what we're hearing from other islands as well. The Tidy Development Trust has put a lot of effort in the last couple of years, last 10 years, into developing the harbour in Tidy, the fishing harbour, um, and you know, really growing and, and successfully growing the the fishing community in the islands. It's one of the one of the sectors that's bucked our depopulation trend. Um, it accounts for over 20 full-time jobs. And so any threat to that is an enormous threat just to the well-being of our island economy and, and our, our community. And so this consultation coming out as it has with such sweeping um, sort of suggestions and so little nuance or um, dialogue initially with, with fishing communities has has resulted in a lot of fear and I think a lot of anger as well, which you can tell by, you know, we've, we've had our first protest song that we've had for quite a long time that came out by Skippinish, where there was a real, real strength of feeling, certainly across social media, about, about these proposals. And you're saying there it supports 20 full-time jobs. Are there other jobs that are perhaps related to that industry? There are, there are a number of other jobs that are related to the fishing industry. So if you think about the drivers who drive the fish lorries, who come in and take out the catch, we've got a tanker driver who does the fuel deliveries. There's this ongoing knock-on effect. We've got 25% of the kids eight and under on the island are from fishing families. So if you lose those families, if those families decide to move elsewhere because they, they need to find a, a, an equivalent income, if you lose that number of children out of a school, then you lose a good chunk of the funding for the school. And so this ongoing knock-on effect happens and undermines the, the entire fabric of a community that is, that is really quite small and fragile at the end of the day. And many island communities already struggle, as you've kind of alluded to there, with depopulation. Do you think proposals like these could make the future of, the, of many islands unviable? I think it has the potential to make the future of islands unviable. Yes. I mean, if you take the consultation at face value and the suggestions of what could be banned in Scottish inshore waters, um, then you are looking at one of the, the three you know, main pillars of island economies just being knocked from under it. And this comes in this perfect storm, I think. We're talking about housing and second homes in islands. We've just had the announcement to, um, this week about council tax going up for second homes, potentially, um, which is welcome in, in, in many respects. We've got the ferry. They always miss the ongoing ferry issues in the islands and those, those sort of infrastructure links. And we're still waiting, many people, for, for the final couple of miles for, for fibre connection for the internet. So if you take all of that together, we've got this perfect storm of islands, communities feeling like they are second-class citizens, um, that they're not as important as, as urban centres. Um, and then to take out, I guess, one of the one of the industries where we still have the strongest Gaelic um, culture left, where you might hear Gaelic still spoken. 
I, that, that entire combination has resulted in, I think, I think in the, the pushback that you've seen. There's been some suggestion that perhaps those in government ministers, you know, are they're more focused on the central belt. They perhaps don't understand rural and island communities. Would you agree with that assessment? I think so, sadly. <laughs> I don't think it's the intention, um, but it is certainly the result. You know, there's people out there saying that the government is trying to actively ruin island communities. I don't think that's the case, but I, I think it is a it is a result of not having enough elected representatives from our, our really rural and island communities and just a lack of understanding about how our communities operate and how everything is so interwoven. And one of the great frustrations, I think, particularly around this HPMA consultation, is that we see so much top-down suggestions, um, which are done in a way which are very hard to parse. I mean, just trying to read through that consultation and understand it and respond in a helpful way, it was incredibly inaccessible. And so the the sort of top-down suggestions that come from government, the further you get away from, from the centre of power, the the less concern or the less understanding there seems to be of how to communicate with communities and how to start an open dialogue and discussion. You know, it's we all know that the seas need to be protected. There's not a fisherman in this country that's going to disagree with that because they need to conserve stocks for future generations. But this consultation seemed to start from the assumption that that's not being done. You know, there was no discussion about what is already being done and how sustainable creole, fixed line creole fishing is, which is one of the most sustainable forms of fishing. So I think it's I think it's ignorance um, and and maybe just a, a lack of understanding that the further you get from the central belt, the, the more the story changes, the more the, the dynamics change. Obviously, the, the counter argument to all of this is that these measures are needed to to protect the marine sort of ecosystem and as you say that's in that's an islander's interests as well so is it the case that you know you feel already that the fishermen are already adopting quite you know many sustainable practices in terms of how they operate i can certainly speak for the the tyree fishermen having you know i've learned a lot about fishing in the last in the last month or so and um they are operating as sustainably as they can right now. And, you know, they would, I, I think all fishermen would be open to discussions about how to better conserve and help future stocks. It would be ridiculous not to. Um, but our our fishermen, um, you know, they voluntarily V-notch female lobsters when they put them back. They keep track of what they're catching and how often they're catching a particular lobsters. They are interested. They are invested in, in their in their fishing grounds. And one of the points that, that has been made is that we already have marine protected areas in the West Coast. The consultation suggesting potentially layering the HPMAs on top of that. So they're already under a huge amount of, of regulation. Um, and one of the things that, that we've been learning as, as, or I've been learning as I've been talking to, to our local fishermen is how little enforcement there already is of those marine protected areas. And so it's still permissible for large boats to come in and fish in the waters normally fished by, by our community. Um, and so I think there's actually a huge amount out there that A, is being done and B, could be done to enforce existing regulations. Our fishermen were part of the campaign to decrease the maximum landing size and increase the, the minimum landing size, for example. Um, so they... 
there is a will out there, but none of these conversations were had in the first instance. And that has what is what has created this backlash. And just finally, what would you what would your kind of ideal outcome be from this? Would you like the Scottish government to go back to the drawing board or would you just like them to have perhaps more of a more of a dialogue with fishing communities? There has to be a dialogue to start with. And I think there needs to be some honesty. And, you know, the reality is people have been saying, oh, there's no firm proposals yet. No, there aren't. And that's part of the problem, actually, because you have nothing left to react to apart from worst case scenario. Um, I think there has to be a root and branch like overhaul of how these consultations are carried out, just in terms of accessibility for the communities they affect. What I would like to see and what I think our local fishermen would like to see is the government turn it saying, do you know what? We did this the wrong way around. Um, we need to commit to 10% of Scottish waters being treated as highly protected marine areas. We also understand that your communities could be hugely impacted. How can we work together? That's where we should have started. And that was Rhoda Meek speaking to Adele Merson there about what is proving to be quite a controversial subject. We were reporting earlier this week as well about one former SNP MSP from he had a central Scotland seat, but he's from the Western Isles originally. Um, and he, he quit the SNP after 35 years, uh, saying that this proposal is the final straw. Angus MacDonald, who's from the Isle of Lewis originally, he um, even goes as far as saying that, that, that you know there has to be a, a new Highlands and Islands party to represent the interests that he thinks are getting ignored. I mean, all of this was floating around um, the, the, the sort of political debate at the Scottish Parliament this week. The First Minister's questions, which is on, on Thursday, um, a lot of this was raised as well. Rachel was in the in the chamber to watch it all happen. Um, Hamza Yousaf was asked about these proposals as well, and he didn't really, I don't think he, he gave the most confident assertion that this is a, a, a nailed-on policy at this stage. Yeah, it was it was quite a, a destructive um FMQs this week, lots of um, cheers and jeers from all across the chamber for Hamza Yusuf. Um, and you were saying there that you're not sure if it would be nailed in stone. And given what we've seen in this week about um, other proposals being paused, perhaps we will see the same thing here. Who knows? Because there, it seems to be that Hamza Yusuf is um, quite keen to try and move away as much as possible now from the previous government, which let's remember he was very central too so it seems to be he's yeah. trying to sort of try and put a wedge trying to sort of say this is a new government a new start for the SNP and the Green Party here in Holyrood. In terms of the fishing policy though he was really reluctant to make it sound as though he had a set idea about what it means almost to the point where he was saying that the policy is so vague that no one needs to worry about it at all which begs the question what what's it for? Why, what are people being consulted on if it's there's no criteria and there's really no not any clarity on where these um, areas would be? I think that's part of the problem as well. With um, Rhoda saying that she, she feels that there's a maybe a disconnect between the Highlands and Islands and there's a forgottenness for those communities, and that perhaps plays into that as well. There is that vagueness that no one's entirely sure what is going on, and that I think. Um, does sort of create more of that divide for those communities who do feel that they are just being are just forgotten about, aren't they? So, yeah. so I mean, it wasn't the only thing happening at First Minister's Questions. Um, Justin, you you sort of touched on this earlier. Uh, someone who Hamza Yousaf referred to as my good friend, Fergus Ewing, 
um, not entirely sure I believed what he was saying there, but he went absolutely tonto on the back benches about all kinds of different things. And one of them, he really does not like the SNP's coalition with the Greens, right? There's no news there. Everyone knows that that's the case. But, uh, it, you know, he, he was going a lot further this time. Tell, tell us a little bit about the colour. Well, the subject of oil and gas, which is obviously very prominent um, a lot of weeks in Scottish politics, uh, was very much at the fore yesterday. Uh, outside the chamber, you had um, you know sit-in protests, essentially, people standing on tables because they couldn't get into the chamber. So you had people basically saying the SNP aren't doing enough on oil and gas to move away from it quickly. They aren't doing enough to protect workers. But inside the chamber, you had Fergus Ewing arguing that the SNP need to rely more on oil and gas. And I think there's a sense on the SNP backbenches that, um, you know, I remember during the leadership campaign, you know, the tail wagging the dog, if that's the correct phrase, you know, was used to describe the SNP and Greens relationship. And there's maybe a sense that the Greens are very much dictating this move away from oil and gas from the SNP. So Fergus Ewing um, was basically referring to it as a form of econ economic masochism. So essentially, you know, self-sabotage to move away from oil and gas at the rate we're doing. And he referred to the Greens as wine bar revolutionaries. So a phrase that they, you know, they may decide to get printed in T-shirts in the weeks to come. But perhaps a sense that, you know, the, the Greens are maybe perceived as, you know, that's much more urban city based party. And Fergus Ewing, you know, Inverness and Nairn MSP is kind of perhaps... I suppose essentially arguing that they don't really understand the issues of both rural workers and oil and gas workers. And obviously this is a sector that has been massively important in the northeast. But one thing that I thought was interesting running through this, you know, when you think of these protesters from the group this is rigged, they were called. And when you think of Fergus Ewing on the other end, they're sort of at polar opposites. But, but when it comes down to it, there is this shared concern for how we protect workers and how we transition in a way that benefits workers. Because, you know, I spoke to some of these protesters and one of their main concerns is that we are not doing enough to protect workers as they move out the oil and gas sector. You know, the SNP refer to their policies as a sort of just transition. So this idea of being able to move away from oil and gas to renewables in a fair way. But it feels like on every side of the divide here, you know, at either extreme, there's a sense that, you know, there's not enough confidence for oil and gas workers that enough has actually been doing, been done to help them. But yeah, certainly Fergus Ewing, um, his attacks on the Greens yeah. have, you know, been ramping up in recent weeks. And this was perhaps the most creative yet wine bar revolutionaries. Aye. I mean, the, the thing that you're you're touching on there as well is that I mean, we've had Greens on this podcast before um, arguing the case for the, a rapid move away from oil and gas. And yeah. I think it's the route that's not been settled. I think everybody agrees um, in the Scottish Parliament, at least, that there has to be a shift away from reliance on oil and gas. It seems that just nobody can quite fill in the details about how to get from A to B. And it's, you know, it turns a bit colourful at times in, in the chamber, but it does seem that they're all trying to get to the same place. It's just they get bogged down in this kind of name calling and along the way. Uh, one thing that was noticeable, of course, was that uh, the last week before the Easter break was really very disrupted by protesters and this time there was only one and most of it was going on outside because they brought in a lot more strict rules for people to come in and see democracy in action talking of democracy in action could could that be coming to an end in scotland anytime soon as well rachel david frost tory brexit champion bumping his gums saying that it's time to basically end the scottish parliament a failed experiment what's the mood yeah, this was uh, this this was a uh, from from David Ross. It did not go down well. Um, I think across the board. I think even the Scottish Conservatives themselves were concerned about it because they they want to uphold 
um, devolution as much as possible because this sort of criticism it kind of plays straight into the hands of the SNP uh, and the Greens as well, who who are wanting independence instead of devolution. So it certainly has caused a bit of a drift there um, up in Scotland, which I'm not entirely sure David Frost was expecting when he yeah. wrote that column. However, um, in saying that, there's a poll that's come out this uh, just today, actually, um, and it sort of says that the SNP, favor, favorability for the SNP is now at an all-time low Um uh, since the 2014 referendum, um, which is not what Hamza Yusuf will be wanting to see after what has been a quite a difficult few weeks. It will not be the icing on the cake for him, will it? No, no, the polling is interesting. And uh, it's also possibly a disconnect. A lot. Of, we were talking about this in the office the other day. Uh, Justin, I think me and you were having a chat about this. It's the, the idea that perhaps there's, there is probably a large constituency of Conservative voters in Scotland quite happy to cut out the middleman and just have conservatives in government which is less likely to happen certainly at the moment in in the scottish parliament yeah i mean i suppose you think on it you know like you say realistically with the way you know the parliamentary arithmetic works the scottish tories are not going to run scotland they may be able to in, in some form be in a supply and you know, demand deal in future if the smp are out they may be able to like kind of influence policy to a degree but they're not going to run scotland and if you're a sort of died in the wheel conservative you know the conservatives in, in the 90s you know there's plenty of them that were opposed to devolution then and I'm sure there are some now that, you know, maybe David Frost is sort of saying the, the quiet part out loud where it's like, well, if we want if we want a Conservative government, the best way to deliver that is to, to, to get, you know, to get it at Westminster. And obviously Westminster, there's plenty of devolved powers, but when it comes to health, education, justice, you know, areas that the Conservatives are sort of always going on about in Scotland, there's not really any way for the Conservatives to run that up here. And there's perhaps a sense as well, even if the SNP get booted out, you know, down the line, there's probably a chance they're going to get in again. You know, it's it's almost like the reverse of the independence argument yeah. where the SNP might argue, you know, no matter how many times Labour get in, at some point, you know, it's, it's going to go back Conservative. And there's perhaps a reverse of that up here where if you're a Conservative, you know, yeah, the, the best way to get Conservative government is the UK. And the, the biggest risk is that you end up with, as we've seen, you know, long-term SNP government. So, yeah, I, I do wonder how that plays out at a grassroots level within the party. Yeah. Well, Labour are going up in the polls, in Scotland at least, uh, according to the YouGov uh, data we were looking at this morning. Now, they're the ones that are, they always badge themselves as the party of devolution. Um, it was it was their baby. Um, so does that maybe show that the the Scottish public anyway are, are, are still in favour of devolution and perhaps the SNP and the Tories fighting about ending it in one way or another? Uh, is perhaps the the thing that people want to move on for. But on on that Labour point, Rachel, you, you were you were listening to senior Labour politicians in Dundee this very week. Um, Angela Rayner was in Dundee at the Caird Hall talking to the STUC Congre uh, Congress, wasn't it? At, uh, for over a few days this week. What what did you kind of get as the mood from on the ground there? Are people becoming more receptive to that, or is it still a lot of a lot of work for them to do? Well, as you said, Angela Rayner and Anna Sarwar both spoke at the STUC conference in Dundee and both were very much treating their time on stage in front of the trade unionists as a chance to campaign for the Labour Party. This was not a... Uh, these were not speeches on how on, on the merits of the trade union movement and the Labour Party. This was very much a case of this is how we're going to get into power. This you should vote for us to get rid of the Tories in Westminster and to get rid of the SNP in Holyrood. And very much going hard on that line. And I think they know the audience there. They know that this audience, most of a fair chunk of them will be voting for Labour anyway. But I think um 
very much being treated as a party who know they're on the up, know they're gaining popularity and know that they've got a good chance of winning a lot of seats in the next election as well. As well, I spoke to Angela Rayner um, saying, well, you're saying here that you, you want to win more seats in Scotland, but you're right here in Dundee, which is very much a fortress of SNP power. We've got an SNP council, SNP MPs and MSPs. And of course, the new first minister, Hamza Youssef, lives in the city as well. Um, so I asked her, like, how are you going to break through such a stronghold in somewhere like Dundee? And she was very clear, saying, well, look what happened to the Labour Party. We we thought we could never lose in Scotland. We relied too heavily on just getting those votes automatically, and we lost them because of that. And she said the SNP need to learn that lesson because that could easily happen to them too. So that I thought was quite interesting um, as they sort of start their start ramping up their campaigning for the general election. Okay. Well, Rachel, um, you know, we're drawing to an end here, but also to an end for your appearances on this douche, because you are, of course, you're moving on to Pastors New. So I thought, well, you know, you're going to do that. Why don't I hit you with a quick last test? Um, so oh, no. just before you, before you sign, sign off for the last time on this douche, looking back over your, your times on this program, this podcast, who is your ultimate stouche of the week? If you had to top them all up and think... <laughs> It's me. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's have a think. Let's have a think. Do you know what? I'm thinking I might actually say myself there because <gasps> last year you, I was asked who the next prime minister was going to be. And um, I said Liz Truss. And as it turns out, that was true for 44 days. Um, perhaps if I had not made that prediction, things may have gone differently in, in that in the you think contest, you, shall we say. You think you jinxed it? <laughs> brought this trust into power. Well, I mean, that's, a, that's a, a very self-deprecating way to, to bow out by awarding yourself stoosh of the boy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, I'm, I'm sure everyone who's familiar with this program will be sad to, say, to, to hear that the end of Rachel's dulcet pressure tones. That's it for this week. And it is with a heavy heart we say goodbye to Rachel Amory as well. But thank you to her for all her appearances on The Stushi and to Adele Merson and our guest Rhoda Meek, to Justin Bowie and producer Morvan McIntyre having fun with the sound effects in the background. And of course to you for listening. We'll be back next week. But until then, pick up a paper or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed.